Welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm very happy to have you here today. In this episode, I am republishing an interview I did with Dr. Ellen Langer, who is a, an American psychologist and professor at Harvard University, where she was the first woman to be tenured in the Harvard Psychology Department. And she, Ellen Langer, has really devoted her life to what I'll call non-meditative mindfulness. That's mindfulness that doesn't depend on sitting on your cushion and watching your breath for a half hour a day. And I, I really came to consciousness about her work probably 10, 12 years ago. I was in a collaboration project at Boston University with a sports psychologist named Dr. Amy Baltzell. And Amy and I were collaborating to create a graduate-level course that she was putting on on mindfulness and performance. And this this was born out of the study that I did with her where we uh, developed a mindfulness intervention for the women's soccer team at Boston University and sort of tested the outcomes of that intervention on their psychological uh, experience during, during soccer matches. And the outcomes were good. Um, uh, we wrote a book on it. That book's on my website. It's called Mindfulness Training in Sport. Um, and we, um, based on that, we, we, we created the course, Mindfulness and Performance, that in, in which we combined, I would say, this is where I'm going, we combined the kind of the, the theoretical and practical uh, approaches to mindfulness from two central figures. One of them, which is the person you probably heard of a lot, John Kabat-Zinn. So we, we, we onboarded elements of John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness training, but also uh, we, we incorporated the work of Ellen Langer, who has a non-meditative form of mindfulness where you don't have to sit, as I said. So Ellen Langer's form of mindfulness is a, in being non-meditative, is kind of a present active state, as she defines it, of simply noticing new things. Or sometimes I kind of boil that down to just simply noticing novelty. And she would say that when you're in a state of noticing novelty, you're grounded in the present, and you're either aware of changing experiences that you're uh, having, or you're aware of your changing perception of those experiences. And either way, uh, this, this very active state of noticing novelty is one of the dynamics that is conducive to supporting flow state. And that's why she's her, her work is really uh, figured centrally in the development of the positive psychology school. Now, I'm not really sure, and I didn't really want to get into it in the conversation with her, but I'm not really sure why her form of mindfulness is really relegated to the background compared to the meditative form that John Kabat-Zinn has, has trumpeted over the years. Um, I don't know the reasons for that, but I will say, as a as a as a some as someone who does a lot of meditative mindfulness, whenever I remember to check in with her work and just remember the her, the, the central premises or the central tenets of her teaching, um, I find an immediate improvement in the quality of my attention and the quality of my practice and the quality of my life. So I I really cannot overstate the the deep and valuable influence that her work has had on me and the way I think about teaching mindfulness. And if you've been following along in recent episodes, one of my last Dharma talks was on the theme of doubt. And in that talk, I try to suggest that doubt of of many of the difficult dynamics in doubt, it, it really can zap one's enthusiasm and energy for practice. You just feel kind of bewildered by the, the, the difficulties of, of the doubting mind. Um, you just don't feel like you're able to practice well. And, and the antidote that I was uh, suggesting in that talk was that uh, accessing flow, having a, an access or capacity for cultivating flow can really instill a sense of confidence and, and faith in your practice. And uh, as I mentioned Recently, I, I recently had a, a long conversation with Robert Wright, and uh, one of the things that we discussed was uh, his flailing meditation practice. He was, he was wanting me to kind of triage and offer some suggestions for how he could uh, revitalize his own 
uh, mindfulness practice. And we spent 90 minutes on that talk, and I, I wish I could redo it at this point. I felt like I got turned around. He, he's a very quick-witted, quick-minded, um, kind of a hummingbird mind, and, and sometimes he, I got spun around and got a little dizzy in the conversation. So I feel like my, my suggestions for him were not the best, but if I had a redo, if I were able to do a redo with Bob, I would give him one advice in your meditation, simply notice new things, notice novelty. In other words, integrate the qualities of Ellen Langer's approach to mindfulness with the meditative approach that you may learn from a, a teacher like John Kabat-Zinn, for, for, for example. Um, now, this, as I said, this interview was originally published on Robert Wright's platform, Meaning of Life TV, a few years ago. But uh, because it never made it into my podcast, I wanted to re-release it here so you would have access to it and could, if you haven't discovered her work, that you could look into her, her, her books and teaching further. The two books that I'm going to recommend and that are going to be listed in the show notes, one is called On Becoming an Artist, and the other book is called The Power of Mindful Learning. So check out those books if you're interested in this, and I really do hope you appreciate the conversation with her today. Real quick, before I give that talk, if you're new to the podcast, I hope, you're, I hope you enjoy your experience here, and I hope to see you again on the show. If you've been coming regularly, and if you're interested in offering any support to this free publication, um, you can do that in a few different ways, but the easiest way is you can head over to my site, and there's links in the show notes for doing this, but you can head over to the site. You can take a class with me and Terry, either in meditation or yin yoga or yang yoga or qigong. Or you can buy a book. You can buy uh, the book I co-wrote with Michael Brooks called The Buddha's Playbook, which I'm just going to tease. I'm, I'm starting to write a, a, a several new chapters to be added to that book. Um, and, and I'll have a revised, I think even memorial edition of the book that if you already own it, you'll get that update on, uh, on the electronic update. But I'm going to also try to reprint this um, and get it out again. So anyway, there's a book on my site, The Buddhist Playbook. Uh, and uh, if you'd like to take any courses that we have online, there, there's some courses there on yin yoga and other themes, as well as if you'd like to practice with us regularly in a kind of an online studio that we call the Sangha. Um, that's also uh, one way to support the work here. Um, but a simple way, too, is if you like the episode, please consider sharing it as they as they say, sharing is caring, and um, I'm trying to make more and more of, uh, of the work that Terry and I are doing uh, freely available to anyone that is um, interested in it, and then the revenue is simply based on kind of the generosity of those that find benefit in what we're doing. So it's the ancient Buddhist model of dana, and um, the, I'll say more at some other time, but the, the pandemic has actually allowed me to tack from kind of the more capitalist structure of yoga teaching to this Buddhist-based model of dana, And uh, we both feel that this is truly in align with our own heart's mission here, and we're very grateful that it's working. So those of you that have chipped in and, uh, and helped out in, in form of support, thank you so much. You're making this work possible, and you're making it possible for those that are unable to support us to receive it um, for free. So that is really uh, kind of the, a virtuous feedback loop of sharing and giving. So once again, thank you for any level of your support, even if it's just sharing an episode that you happen to like with a friend. And now, without further ado, I bring you Professor Ellen Langer with Non-Meditative Mindfulness. Well, let me introduce this. I'm Josh Summers, and you are Ellen Langer, a social psychologist at Harvard, and you are the first female professor to, re to receive tenureship at, in the psychology department at Harvard. You've been doing research for over 40 years on mindfulness, and you're the author of several books, including uh, Mindfulness, Counterclockwise, Mindful Health and the Power of Possibility, as well as On Becoming an Artist. Reinventing Yourself Through Mindful Creativity. 
And for those of the people that are listening, um, your mindfulness is a kind of non-meditative mindfulness. So for those of the people that may be tired up to their gills with listening to information about mindfulness, this is a, a, a distinctly different brand of mindfulness, and I want to get into that with you. So to start, uh, could you just start by defining what mindfulness is to I, you? I'm happy to do that, but it's also important for your audience to know that this didn't come after all of these people working on meditation. Buddha aside that um, we've been doing this work for, as you said, over 40 years. And it's not a matter of it being better or worse than meditation. Meditation is engaged to lead to post-meditative mindfulness. Once you're mindful, you're mindful. So if you were going to Paris, it wouldn't matter if you got there by boat by plane, once you're in Paris, you're in Paris. Now, ours is um, a very different way of becoming mindful. It's more immediate. Um, most of us are mindless virtually all the time, and we're oblivious to it. You know, when you're not there, you're not there to know you're not there. So the question is how to be there, how to be in the present. Lots of people give an instruction. They say, be in the moment. But it, it falls on deaf ears because, again, when you're not there, you don't know that you're not there. So the way that to be there, the way to be mindful, is the very, very simple process of actively noticing new things. As you actively notice new things about things you think you know, you come to see, gee, you didn't know it as well as you thought you did. So it's new for you, and then naturally grabs your attention. When you're noticing new things, that puts you in the present, makes you sensitive to context and perspective. And the phenomenological experience of this act of noticing, which is your definition of being mindful, is engagement. It's the way you feel when you're most engaged in whatever you're doing. So it's easy, um, it feels good, and 40 years of research shows that it's very important for your health and well-being. Great. Um, can we back up for one second? Um, you, you made, the, sta you made yes. the statement that if you get to Paris, it doesn't matter how you get there, you're in Paris. And the idea that um, post-meditative mind or meditation generates post-meditative mindfulness, implying that the kind of mindfulness that you get into, into after meditation is in the same category of mindfulness yes. that you're describing. Exactly. It's exactly the same. That what you want to do, so when you meditate, which is a practice, that's why a lot of people don't want to do it or don't, um, are not able to do it. But what you're doing is letting thoughts come to mind and then letting them just leave. So you come to learn over time that the thoughts are not real in some important way. Another way of doing this is to take the thought and question it from many perspectives. And then you also see that it doesn't have the weight that you thought it had before. You know, when you, when you think of something, uh, when you're stressed about something, so stress is not a function of events. Stress is a function of the view you take of events. So if you take a more mindful view and you ask yourself, well, how do I know that this thing is even going to occur? So ask, give yourself three reasons why that dreaded event might not occur it becomes less stressful because it went from it was definitely going to occur to maybe it will, maybe it won't. The second thing is to ask yourself how it might actually be a good thing. So you go from here's this horrible thing that's definitely going to happen to this thing may or may not happen. And when it happens, it's going to cut in multiple ways depending on the way I choose to look at it. So thoughts then dissipate. I mean, once you see that you don't have to be afraid of something, you don't spend your time with that so-called monkey brain. Right. Um, well, one of the things I was thinking of, though, was that uh, a meditative approach kind of develops a non-reactive stance towards experience. Yeah. Um, and yours doesn't have, to me, doesn't seem to have, seem to have that, quite that same flavor. It's, no, it's, it's no, more it's of an active... It, it, it's very active. Right. But... A similarity is that it's non-evaluative. So in all of our work, it's, it becomes clear quite quickly that evaluation is in your mind, not in the thing you're evaluating. But so it's non-judgmental, and it's active in that you're out there in the world, and 
you've done it a thousand times, and how do you make it new for yourself? Well, you can start meditating, and over the course of several years, all of a sudden it may feel new. Or you can simply ask yourself, how is this new? How does it look different? How is this person I've been living with, uh, how is this person different today from yesterday? different today, now from a few hours ago. And in noticing novelty, we stay engaged. The neurons are firing, we're feeling uplifted, it's easy, and all of our data show that it's very good for your health. Right, and I, I want to definitely want to get into some of the, the data on health and uh, positivity. Um, but I just want to st step back for this one more second on, on this issue of non-evaluative. Non-evaluative, because it does seem like you're in your approach, and, and I, I want to say I'm a fan of your approach. Um, that you're you are of, you're aware of your evaluations as you're uh, you're considering. Well, you're, you can't. I mean, you know. But the point is that there that awareness says that you're the one who's seeing it, whatever the it is, in a particular way, which doesn't mean that that's the way the thing is. So you can choose if you want to be evaluative. The important thing is to recognize that the world is not made up of good things and bad things. Right now, people are reactive. If they think something is good, they think they have to have it. If they think something is bad, they have to avoid it. When they realize it's neither good nor bad, you become easier about everything. I can stay put and let things unfold. And if I go to a restaurant and the food is good, that's wonderful. If I go to a restaurant and the food is bad, that's wonderful. I'll eat less. <laughs> so no matter what happens, you're, you can create the life you're living. Whereas now most people are reactive and feel victims of a world that's not always kind to them. Right, and there's actually ample f fear of that right now in, our, in the yeah, uh, political yeah, situation. Um, right. And that political situation makes many of my comments harder to make, I must say. <laughs> well, no, I wanted to ask you about that because that's, I mean, it, it does seem like the, the comments you make are, are sort of bound within a certain degree of contextual relevance, like, or, and, or that it works well within certain contexts, but then there seems to be a kind of an upper limit or glass ceiling to how well they're well, going to work. You know, what we need to do is make a plan to speak again in a couple of years. And then we'll see whether all of the anxiety everybody is experiencing um, was um, necessary or not. Um, but the world that most of us live in is not controlled by these larger political forces. Mm -hmm. And most of us get ourselves stressed, unhappy over much smaller things. So regardless of... Um, as you put it, uh, whether there are upper boundaries or not to what I'm saying, the boundaries with which, in which we all tend to live in a daily way, all that I'm saying, I believe, is fully relevant. Yes. Um, and part of what goes on when someone engages with their experience mindfully, as you're describing it, is that they start to consider possibility, correct? Yes. So yeah. One of the things that, uh, when I give talks on this, I often talk about having been at a horse event, and this man asked me if I'd watch his horse because he was going to get his horse a hot dog. Well, you know, you didn't say this in your introduction, but I'm Harvard-Yale all the way through, an A-plus student. So I know, as well as anyone, that horses don't eat meat. He comes back with the hot dog, and the horse ate it. And it was at that moment that I thought, everything I know could be wrong. Now, what's interesting is when you know you don't know, you pay attention. It's when you think you know that life can become boring or that you, you don't avoid the dangers in front of you. You're not there to take advantage of the opportunities as they present themselves. So if you uh, – we spend some time um, – I've written a lot about medical data, for example, and that all science can only give us probabilities. Now, that means if we were to do this study, you know, do horses eat meat, for instance, we'd have to get particular kind of horses, 
particular kind of meat. We'd have to decide how much to give them and so on. And if we found the horses didn't eat meat, we'd write it up. And But still, it means that if we were to do the exact same study, which you can never do exactly the same, that at best we'd be able to say most horses don't eat this kind of meat. Now, what happens is that all of science is translated by the media, by teachers, by parents, as absolute fact. So you're told horses don't eat meat, you know, rather than some horses under some occasions don't eat meat. When you recognize that the world is really ruled by probabilities rather than absolute facts, um, you pay a different kind of attention to the world, which is very important. We have a population that's aging, and many of the stereotypes we have of getting older are very negative. And um, we have research, for instance, that leads people to believe that as you get older, your memory is going to falter. Well, but that's probabilistic. It doesn't mean everybody's memory, and it doesn't mean memory for everything. You know, so when you take these facts as possibilities, probabilities, you, you live in the world in, in quite a different way. So we have lots of health research where we take these illnesses where it's presumed people have no control over them and show that, in fact, we have more control than people might have assumed because we start off that with the medical fact only as a probability, not as an absolute. Now, I've just said so many different things. It's interesting to me to see which of these you're going to pick up. <laughs> yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, I, I definitely want to come into the medical medical research in, in a little bit. Um, but I, I want to back up a little bit to this idea of possibility. Because sometimes, you know, if I think about considering more possibility or considering things that could be pos- could possibly happen, that tends to ratchet up. Um, anxiety in me. Um, and it reminds me of a, a phrase that I, I, I read in an Irish novel years ago that said, tolerable misery is the only option for those that are cursed with a perception of other possibilities. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but but your, <laughs> your research, yeah, nicely put, but your research seems to imply the, the opposite, that yes. opening to possibility actually does have a directionality to it. And it's a yes. directionality of positivity. I think so, yes. I think that um, to think that something may be is not the same thing as believing for sure that it will be so that you set yourself up for failure. And a failure at time one doesn't mean it's going to continue to be a failure if tried again at time three or 12. All failures tell us is the way we tried it didn't work. Mm. So the whole notion of something being uncontrollable has to be rethought. Right now, data, research can only speak to um, uh, whether something is indeterminate, not uncontrollable. The difference being that you do a study, the study says, gee, that didn't work. It doesn't say more than that. It doesn't say that if it were done differently, it, it wouldn't have worked. All right, so that all we can say is we don't know which is different. So if you wanted to try something that you've never thought you were able to do or that people thought was humanly impossible, there is no proof that you can't do it. There's only proof that it hasn't been done so far. And that proof that it hasn't been done so far can suggest a probability that it's unlikely? Well, yes, except that everything that happens at one point, almost everything, was seen as not able to happen in the past. Who would have predicted that we'd be able to um, create airplanes, you know, that could fly across the country, that we could have a Skype call, be in two different locations and be able to talk to each other? You know, people have a mistaken notion that uh, they can predict, and I believe that virtually all prediction is an illusion, but that's a, that's a different podcast for us. <laughs> right. Um, well, let's look at some of the medical stuff that you've done, some of the medical research, because this, this is, um, I think, will be compelling t- to people. Um, with your counterclockwise study, you took a bunch of 80, 80-year-old guys up to New Hampshire and turned the clock back. Right. The idea behind that was this very simple 
theory we call mind-body unity, which says mind and body, these are just words. Let's put them back together, and then wherever we're putting the mind, we're necessarily putting the body. So we took these old men to a retreat that had been retrofitted to 20 years earlier and had them live there as if they were their younger selves. They discussed events of the past as if they were just happening. They were surrounded by icons from that time period and so on. Um, and uh, we had a comparison group that did the exact same thing. They were in the same retreat, but for them, they were reminiscing. So they were always aware that now was now and then was then. Right. And so um, both groups actually improved in ways that most people would say was impossible. You know, when before this had you heard vision and hearing in old people improve? But we got improvements in hearing in both groups. Beyond the improvement in hearing, uh, the experimental group, their vision improved, their strength improved, their memory improved, um, their arthritis decreased, and uh, we took blood photographs. Blood pressure? Of, uh, blood pressure, yeah, you have it in front of you. I'm nope. trying to <laughs> Just my memory. <laughs> your memories. you're younger than I am, so we should say your memory's better. We don't believe that, do we? <laughs> no, that's just a construct. Anyway, <laughs> we took photographs of everybody before the study and then again at the end and found that, um, and then we gave them to people to photograph people to say how old they thought the people were. And the group um, that um, lived as if they were 20 years younger um, were evaluated as looking younger. They didn't look 20 years younger, but still noticeably younger. And you could feel the difference. You know, these were people that when the study first started, they would show up at William James Hall, my office, to be tested to see if they were healthy enough to be in the study, with their adult daughter, who uh, would be treating them as if they were totally incompetent, you know, like children, mm. loving, but over-caring. And um, once they got to the retreat where they were on their own and they would make their own meals and they were basically you know, going to be taking care of themselves again, uh, there was a vibrancy, a vitality that, that you could almost feel. Hmm. And it was that, of course, the measures went along with this. Um, so and this study had been replicated in part in um, uh, London, South Korea and the Netherlands. Uh, but the more recent research on the same mind-body um, hypothesis was much better controlled. And it was very hard to do the original study where you're taking people away for five years, uh, five days, seven days, you know, um, where so many other things could happen. Go right. on, I'm sorry. you want No, that's what I was going to ask you, that, the, that these, uh, these results were, were seen within just a week. Yeah, and that's, that's also quite amazing. Yeah. But I think that it's like spontaneous remissions, which the medical world can't explain, which is mind-body unity theory can explain. You know, that once that mind, the mind is in this healthy place, all of you is in this healthy place. The problem is that we have so many mindsets, stereotypes of disease, of aging, that um, just hearing me talk and saying that the way your mind approaches things is all important is often not enough for people, you know, because they've lived with the belief that if they have cancer, they're going to die. You mm -hmm. know, so then someone says, well, your mind may be able to control this. And I think, well, maybe I won't have to die, but it, it can't be a maybe. It has to be a, a full belief, so to speak. So with this study, um, the, the, the thing, the connection that I can't quite figure out in my head is how does what you did in that study uh, uh, evaluate the effectiveness of mindfulness? Where okay. in the study yeah. itself, it seems like this is more of a priming effect, where you're priming these people to yes. li live it's in a certain really way. On mindlessness, um, but um, it, you know that's why I say that this study. Uh, doesn't disentangle some of the sorts of questions you're likely to ask as well as all of the subsequent studies. One of the things that speaks to mindfulness was these men were now going to live someplace brand new to them. Mm -hmm. And so in doing that, all of a sudden, they were going to have, uh, going to be mindful for the five days. But yes, it's basically by tricking them in some sense, letting them trick themselves mm -hmm. to go back to this other time. It's, it's um, a placebo. 
Right. You know, placebo is um, really the best medicine we have. Now, when you take a placebo, there's something ridiculous about this, that we need to take a pill, best if a doctor gives it to us, to let us think that we're going to become better. But if we can become better, it's not the pill, right, because the pill is just a sugar pill. So we're doing it for ourselves. And so lots of my work is, is aimed at trying to figure out how to give people this control more directly without, without this fake pill, so to speak. Right. So the counterclockwise study was a, a mix of both mindfulness and mindlessness. But the next study that we did um, was a little clearer in showing the effect of these mindsets. This was the chambermaid study. So do you want, shall I talk about that? Yeah, talk about the chambermaid study. Okay, thanks for asking, John. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what we did was first we uh, went to a group of chambermaids and asked them if they get any exercise. And interestingly, they said they didn't get any exercise. That's because for them, exercise was what the Surgeon General says you do after work. And since they're exercising all the time they're at work, the thought of going to a gym or whatever is not appealing. Okay, so if exercise is good for your health, the first interesting question for us was, are they healthier than socioeconomically similar other people who don't work, um, work out in, as in their work all day long? And the answer was no. Okay, so we took uh, half of these chambermaids, and we simply taught them that their work was, in fact, exercise. We told them things that making a bed was like working on this or that machine at the gym and so on. So now we have two groups. One group that sees their work as exercise, one group that doesn't realize their work is exercise. We took lots of measures before this. Uh, when um, the study was over, I don't remember if it was a month or six weeks later, and we asked people, did you work any harder? Did you eat any differently? As many things as we could think of. And there were no differences between the two groups. Then came the important measures. And what we found is those chambermaids who now saw their work as exercise lost weight. There was a change in waist-to-hip ratio, body mass index, and their blood pressure came down. All as a result, we say, um, in the change of their mindsets. Yeah, and the question I had around that one was whether the change in mindset led to other behavioral patterns that were not accounted sure. for. Sure. Now, we, we asked as many questions as we could. We took as many measures as we could think of to, mm. um, you know, to see if that was the case. And as far as we could tell, no, the only difference was a change in mindset. When, you know, when you're doing studies outside the lab and people are living a life where there are so many influences, there's no way to control for everything. Mm -hmm. But we had predicted it, we found it, and then we have the next several studies that I'll tell you that all come to the same basic conclusion. The next, are the next set around time? Uh, the next set I was going to do is the vision studies. Okay, go on. Okay, so in the vision studies, most of your listeners um, have taken an eye test at the doctor's office. Right. You, know, you have telling eye chart, letters that get progressively smaller as you read down the chart. And I'm odd, we both know that already, uh, that for me, when I say that, see this chart, what it suggested to me was that it's, the chart is telling me that soon I'm not going to be able to see because the letters get progressively small. Right. What would happen if we reverse the eye chart? So now the letters are getting progressively larger. Now suggesting to me soon I will be able to see. And when we change that, so now I'm expecting to be able to see, I was able to see things I couldn't see before. Now for most of us, when we're taking these eye tests, we expect, and these are people who have reasonably good vision, we expect around two-thirds of the way down the chart that we're not going to be able to see. So what we did was create an eye chart that started a third of the way down the chart. Hmm. So we start with much smaller letters. Two-thirds of the way down this eye chart are going to be much smaller letters than two-thirds of the way down a regular eye chart. And again, people could see what they couldn't see before. Interesting. You know, um, part, of, part and parcel of all of this is that 
because of those absolute facts that I mentioned before and that we're all taught to accept, <coughs> excuse me, when we, we have expectations that we hold everything still. You know, there's something outrageous to me about going to a doctor, getting, looking at these letters that make no sense, right? Um, it's totally then, decontextualized, right? Right. And then being given a number um, that tells us how well we can or can't see. I know that I can see better in the morning than in the afternoon. If I'm hungry, I can see the sign for the restaurant much sooner and so on. And the point is that everything is always changing. Everything looks different from different perspectives. But we have an overwhelming tendency to hold things still. And in doing so, we give up a great deal over our health and well-being. Right. And so within that, within that pattern of holding things still, there's a sense of fixity of self or the sense of, a sense of a fixed self, we, right? Right, exactly. And we do that to have control. But ironically, it's the very thing that leads us to lose control or not have control over things that we otherwise would be able to change. What we need to do is embrace uncertainty. And to go back to what I said at the very beginning, it's much easier to embrace uncertainty when we recognize that the things that we experience out in the world are neither positive nor negative. It's our views that make them positive or negative. So once we see we have control over um, the outcomes we experience... We don't need to worry so much about holding them still, and then we end up with more control by uh, tending to the way they're naturally varying. So on one level, that, um, that sounds very empowering. You know, individuals might hear that and think, oh, you know, if I, if I approach my experience in this way, with, with considering more possibilities, abilities, noticing new things, I'll, I'll be less fixed within this. I won't feel quite as victimized. That- Point. Yes, you've got it exactly. I hope they, they take that away as the message. Yeah, okay, that's good. But I also think there's a potential dark side, and, and I'm wondering if, you, if you've encountered this, where um, it can sometimes be used as a way of sort of almost blaming the victim, right? Where if someone has cancer, let's say, and they're not able yeah. to sort of change their perception to come into yeah. remission, then it's somehow a default of themselves. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point to raise. Um, We have all been taught that we can't control chronic illnesses. We have all been taught that there are lots of things that we can't do. We've been taught that one in one is two. One in one isn't always two. We probably can control chronic illnesses and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, um, because you've been taught something to not exercise control in a way that's uh, opposite to that, shouldn't lead to blaming the victim. If everybody tells you you can't, and then you believe you can't, you shouldn't blame yourself. What I'm saying is if we get enough of us to to entertain the possibility that we can, then people won't be taught they can't in the first place. You know, So then we can put off the whole question about blaming the victim uh, for the next century. But I don't think that, I think that blame itself is mindless. Uh, as something that is going to take us further afield, but I'm in a playful mood, um, if we talk about blame, is that we need to understand that behavior makes sense from the actor's perspective, or else the actor wouldn't do it. And, and I think of that with my dog a lot. Okay. <laughs> you should do it with uh, girlfriends, boyfriends, wives, husbands, whatever, with everybody you know. That um, And then what happens is you look for the sense the behavior made from the person's perspective going forward, not looking back. You do this and you see the person you see as um, uh, impulsive was actually being spontaneous. The person you see as rigid was actually being dependable, someone you can count on. The person you see as conforming was somebody concerned about applying the social grease to an interaction. The person you saw as gullible is, in fact, trusting, and so on. Mm. 
you and, and that's and that's a way you become less evaluative of other people and then less evaluative of yourself. Where were we headed before I took us on this detour? Well, this yeah, that's a good question. Where were we? We were on a road to nowhere. Um, and no, to everywhere. I road to everywhere. I you know I was kind of wanted to get you to talk about um, some of your studies on the perception of time. Um, where, where you, I think you'd done something with, did, did a series of studies with video games where there was a time, uh, clock yeah. in the corner. Yeah. Um, because, because right. that That's one has, that. has real specific, uh, physiological impact. Um, Without question. This was, um, the most recent publication in the studies on mind body unity. We had people who are diagnosed with uh, type two diabetes show up for the study person comes in, um, depending on the group that they're in, they're all going to sit in front of a computer. They're all going to play computer games. There's a clock in front of the computer, and they're told about every 15 minutes or so, change the game you're playing. And the reason for that is so they'd pay attention to the clock. For a third of the people, the clock was going twice as fast as real time. For a third of the people the clock was going half as fast as real time. For the last third, the clock was going real time. The question we were asking was, would blood sugar level follow real or perceived time? And the answer was perceived time, which suggests that control over um, at least type 2 diabetes is not so far off psychological control. Connect the dots there too for me. So, with the perceived time okay. um, group, where they where, where, where the t- where the where the clock was going quicker, was it that they they had different? Was their blood sugar lower? There, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> so, okay, so <clears throat> most people assume that. Um, at whatever hour they're going to need to have a snack, take the insulin or, or whatever um, their procedure, their treatment is, and <clears throat> that their psychology has no influence on it. And this study is designed to show <clears throat> that when we speed the clock up, your insulin level is going to be uh, a function not of biology independent of your psychology, but simply a function of how late you think it is. So it's later, then you're going to need that injection sooner, for example. Uh-huh. All right. So the, the, let, me, let me tell you of um, a sleep study. This we haven't published yet. Um, we need to replicate it, but it, it may make the other study clearer as well. People go to sleep in sleep lab. They wake up. The clock tells them when they wake up that they had two hours more sleep than they actually had. They had two hours fewer sleep than they actually had. Or the clock tells them the amount of sleep they had. Then we take biological and cognitive measures, and they follow perceived time. So if you think you've got a lot of sleep, you do better on these tests Mm -hmm. than if you think you got less sleep than you need. Right? So it's less dependent on biology than psychology. Right. And the the most recent of these is the most dramatic, uh, where people show up for a study willing to give themselves a cold. They walk into a room, there's a very large um, television playing a video of people coughing, sneezing. The room is filled with chicken soup and uh, Vaseline and tissues and whatever we could think of that people would associate with having a cold. And those people who were primed to have a cold were more likely to get a cold. Wow. You were anticipating where I wanted to go with my line of questioning when you brought up the sleep study, um, because this, this perception of time thing seems like it could have an impact on how one experiences jet lag. Yes. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, and it also all of these studies on time uh, harken back in some sense to what you raised before about the limits to some of this work. You know, so I, I'm not suggesting, although I... Um, I'm open to the possibility that we don't need any sleep, for example. But, but all I'm saying is that the life that most of us experience can be uh, lived 
more successfully. You know that, uh, and if you do this, you'll live longer. Will you not die? Well, that's that's probably going to happen anyway. No one seems uh, to escape that yet. But no, if I, if but I, as, far, as far as the question you're asking about jet lag, for me, I do a lot of traveling. So I lecture all over the world, and as soon as I get on the plane, I take on the time period of uh, the country that I'm headed to. And the airlines prepare you for this as well. And if I'm not with anybody that reminds me about the time at home and says, oh, I wonder what they're doing, they're all sleeping now, <laughs> or whatever, that um, I'm, uh, I don't suffer much jet lag. And given that I'm traveling to other continents, you know, to Asia, Australia, um, it leads me to believe that if there were a simple way of studying this, that we'd also get some nice findings. I wanted to do this on the airline, but uh, 50 years ago, I probably could have. Now, with all of the fears, um, right. I can't bring the little vials to get people to spit into and then take uh, um, saliva samples and so on. Too bad. Too bad for us. <laughs> Um, your research has, you know, reached into so many different uh, areas of life, and one of them that I found interesting in the book, I th I'm sure you've written on about it elsewhere, but the one on becoming an artist, you talk about um, how animals seem to be responsive to mindful people that are more mindful. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting to me um, that you mentioned that because I just contacted Laurie Santos who's uh, got the Animal Cognition Lab at Yale, to uh, replicate. I, I did a study 20, 25 years ago um, that it was a bit chaotic. I had uh, went to, um, what is it called? Uh, um, my mind is not working is this at the, the moment. Is this the uh, dolphin one? Dolphin. Yeah. And, um, was it the aquarium? So, no, 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 no. That was not with dogs. <laughs> you know, the aquarium, you have sea lions. <laughs> Got it. Uh, right. So, but we had um, uh, people be either mindful or mindless and to see whether the dogs would go to the person who's mindful or mindless. And can you just say, can you just say for the audience how you triggered that or how you primed the, per the person well, to be mindful or mindless? Sure. Yeah, and, and well, I'll tell you how we're going to try to replicate it now, 20 years later. And the reason I brought all this up is that um, animal cognition has finally come into vogue. So there will be lots of people who uh, will be studying this sort of thing. But um, let's say we have uh, uh, the easiest thing to do would probably to take a pet owner and have the dog a distance from them and have the pet owner be thinking about all of new things they're noticing about their pet, right? So that they're very much in the present. And compare that to when the pet owner is um, just you know, repeating a nursery rhyme, Mary had a little lamb or the Pledge of Allegiance or whatever it is. So in one case, they're being mindful. In one case, we're being mindless. The pet is released. How long does it take the pet to go to the owner? How long does the pet stay with the owner? And so on. Mm -hmm. So we did this with dolphins um, and sea lions. And um, it seems to be the case with them as well. But the more important thing is we did this to show that people are sensitive to other people's mindfulness. So the best thing to do is to do it people to people and leave the animals out for the moment. And when we did this, um, the first test of this was um, we had people selling magazines and they were going to, they learned a script and then the mindful group was told to make it new in very subtle ways that only they would know each time they gave it. And the other group was supposed to just give this well-rehearsed script. And then we would approach the client afterwards and they would evaluate the salesperson. And when the salesperson was mindful, they were seen as far more charismatic than when mindless. Uh, we have children at a camp that are interviewed by um, experimenters who are going to be mindful or mindless. And they're going to have an interview where everybody is told that the interview should be positive. We want the children to like you. Then the mindful group 
of interviewers are told, what we want you to do is pay attention to how the child is changing in the course of the interview, changing both verbally and non-verbally. The mindless group is told, pretend that you're interested in what the child is saying. All right, so then they have the interview, they go through the questions, then somebody else approaches the child and um, asks them questions about the camp themselves and so on. And in that short time, there was a significant difference. The child, um, pre, uh, the child interviewed by my, when mindless, mindless interviewers, yes. had a drop in self-esteem, didn't like the camp anymore, was unwilling to help other campers, and it was basically, it had a very negative experience. Now, you're smart, so the question you're going to ask me is that since they were two groups, did the mindful group exceed the mind, you know, was it an... an they have a positive, they love camp, they can't wait to go back. Right, or was it that the mindless group had a negative effect? With only two groups, we don't know. The thing I can say for sure is that the difference between them was real and that when we're mindful, we have an effect on other people. Other people then can see whether or not we're mindful. We had women giving speeches in a leadership study where they were going to be mindful or mindless, when saying the same thing, right. just with a certain awareness when they're mindful. They were evaluated, evaluated as more trustworthy, authentic, and um, more charismatic. You know, on a personal note, I sh- my sister used to be in a symphony in Winnipeg, um, and she wasn't very happy during her time in the symphony. And I, um, I shared with her some of your studies on the the sort of the the job satisfaction of symphonic musicians, where most people don't know this, but s- symphony musicians, because they have to play repetitive repertoires, don't have much job satisfaction. They're they're essentially very skilled technicians. Right. Right. But you found you did a study where you asked people to one group of of symphonies to make subtle changes in the way they played the music or the pieces in ways that only they would know. And that led to a a greater enhancement of pleasure while playing and in the the, uh, appreciation of the listenership. Isn't that right? That's right. Exactly. We taped the performances, gave them to had people listen to them who knew nothing about the study. And they overwhelmingly preferred the mindfully played piece. And what was important about this study was that they were playing classical music. They weren't playing jazz, which which meant that when we tell them to make it new in very subtle ways that only they would know, they were indeed subtle. Otherwise, the outcome would be difficult to listen to. (laughs) Another part of that, you know, when I wrote that up, Um, I became aware of um, a hidden understanding, or hidden to me at least, when we first ran the study, that here we had a situation where we have essentially everybody in the mindful group doing their own thing. And that led to superior coordinated uh, performance. Mm. Because everybody is in the moment, they're all in the same place. Right. Right. So it leads me, when I talk to people about leadership, that I think the main job of a leader should be to provoke the mindfulness of those being led. Well, that's another question I had, was whether you have any sense of this quality of mindfulness, like when people are mindful and um, sort of displaying greater charisma, whether that mindfulness is itself contagious. Is there a contagion to it? Yes, we we have some uh, early data that... um, I probably should have replicated and made a bigger deal out of, but yeah, I feel um, as certain as one can without data that mindfulness is contagious. You know, you want to be with people who are present. You feel safe when you're with people who are present. And and given they work with uh, animals, children, and adults that we've done, we know when people are mindful. You know, we also, we have an expression, the light's on, but nobody's home. Yep. You know, you know we've all met people like that. Know um, someone personally like that. <laughs> we all do. That, you know, so we know when people aren't there. Um, and I think that most people aren't there. Um, but when you are there, you light up. You're the person who lights up the room, the person that people gravitate to um, and... 
uh, you feel um, cared for, you feel safe, and that allows you to go on and be more mindful yourself. One, one maybe one last question I have for you, or the topic of uh, theme to, to explore is the theme that you hear about in uh, performance psychology of flow, where yeah. there's a state of kind of total immersion, lack of self-reference or self-awareness, uh, um, and, and it produces a very joyful um, right. euphoria almost. Yeah. And do you see, what's, what's the intersection between your work uh, with the experience yeah. of flow? Yeah, and also you, you've asked very good questions. I'm very impressed. I don't know if that has any meaning to you, but um, you know these are uh, these are questions that I've been asked uh, sporadically over the last forty years. This one, um, when the work on flow was first um, begun, was when I started the work on mindfulness. So Mickey and I are doing this, coming from two different traditions. He was a personality psychologist. I was a social psychologist. That's, that's Mickey so Csikszentmihalyi? Yes, right. It's easier to say Mickey than his last name. So that's <laughs> why I chose that route. Um, at any rate, uh, he was asked constantly, how is flow similar to mindfulness? I was asked constantly, how is mindfulness similar to flow? And um, I think that they are very similar. One of the differences is that for me, uh, I believe this is available to all of us virtually all of the time, that it need not be a special state, save for, let's say, athletes or um, musicians. Uh, or... Yeah, exactly. Um, but yes, there are, there are lots of similarities. Great. Um, so I know we're close to time. Um, I mean, this, it really, in some ways, the simplicity of your approach to mindfulness, the non-meditative form of it, belies the depth and, and profound implications it have. I, I know for myself, you know, I, I've been a mindfulness meditator for a number of years now, and it was only when I came encounter with your work that I had the jarring realization of how mindless my meditation practice had become. And I know that's a question you get frequently too, because sometimes people ask, well, how do I routinize this, this new way, this new mode of being? And you kind of say you can't, right? Right. No, I get that. I get, and I give the answer, but it falls on deaf ears often. So I need to find a better answer because people, um, because meditation is a practice, people, want me to give them a practice. So then I come up with things for them to do. Um, but, you know, I did a very early research in the late 70s on meditation. And um, meditation is fine. You know, people shouldn't understand these as two things in conflict with each other. They're just two ways that to get to a similar place. And one can do both. You know, it's not, it doesn't have to be an either or. Mm-hmm. Well, I actually think bringing in a little bit of the noticing novelty to a meditation practice keeps it fresh because it, uh, otherwise the meditation practice just becomes a series of rules and routines that you go through. You create the same more experience more or less time after time and you don't really learn or develop or, or get a new perspective on things so much. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think also that if you took a look at the history of um, meditation programs in our country, what you'd find is that they started first very simply similar to Buddhism, mm -hmm. a different form of meditation, depending on you know, different mantras and so on, but they all require 20 minutes twice a day. Now you have the 20 minutes became 10 minutes, 10 minutes, and some of these programs become five minutes, right. you know, and so Becoming very similar. Mindful and brush your teeth, or this or that. Right. Um, you know, I, I do have a bit of a Buddhist background myself, and um, there was, as I was anticipation of this conversation, I started to think about your categorization of differentiating a mindful mindset towards life versus a mindless. And I saw parallel within the Buddhist teaching, and part of that is that he, the Buddha referred to. Um, two ways of being or two, two cycles of life. There's kind of a samsaric cycle, which is often seen as sort of a lifetime to lifetime kind of cycle where you get born, reborn, and reborn, and then you die and you get reborn again, um, versus nirvana, which is seen as a sort of this transcendent dimension where there's no suffering, nothing at all. 
But there's today there's more of a secular Buddhist appro- interpretation of that, where samsara, the cycle of birth and death, is really kind of a cycle of repetitive behavior or a cycle uh, of um, automated, shit. reactive way of living. And nibbana or nirvana is more of a liberated um, way of being independent of past conditioning. That's great. And I just saw the way that you line up a mindless way of life where you're kind of just going through the motions as a robot, if you will, and versus a mindful way of, of being fully engaged and, and noticing new possibilities and embracing uncertainty. That seems to speak to, I think, what, what he was getting at. My students call me a clock. Closet Buddhist, and I tell them that I'm out of the closet. I don't. So. Well, um, well, listen, Ellen. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your time talking. Now this was fun. Okay, thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Ellen Langer. Again, her books are, um, she has many books on mindfulness, but the ones I'm recommending are on becoming an artist and the power of mindful learning. Both of those uh, will, will really infuse your life with some new perspective and you might find your meditation is now infused with new enthusiasm and interest and curiosity. You might find your relationships are, are suddenly fresher and more vibrant. You may find you're just experiencing more creative insight or interest in creativity in general. Um, I have found all of those to be true from stemming from her work, and I, and I really do encourage you to look into it further. Okay, thanks so much for listening today, and I will look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I'll see you soon.